Well, good morning once again, Gateway family, and to those that are joining us uh, via live stream, we welcome you, and I don't want to forget those who are up in the classroom, um, who uh, are a vital part of what's going on here, but um, uh, we want to make sure that you are welcome too. It's good to see all of you here today, and I want to invite you to get your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts and chapter 6. Now, if you're visiting with us this morning, or it's been a while since you've been here, um, one of the things we do at Gateway is we work our way through one book of the Bible, and we simply deal with what is next, and we believe that it is relevant for us. Well, we're in Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 6, and um, we are going to begin at verse 1 through verse 7. So Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Let me invite you to stand as we read Scripture this morning, and then um, we will pray once again. Here's the word of the Lord. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Procurus um, and Nicanor and Timon and Permenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of the Lord continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Lord, we thank you for your uh, ongoing revealed word. Lord, we are privileged to, to have this record of, Lord, how you breathed out the beginning of your church through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, in particular, the proclamation of your gospel. And, Lord, we ask today that as we come to this text, that we would, uh, we would allow ourselves, Lord, to really place ourselves under it and not to kind of allow our minds to drift because of the nature of this text, but, Lord, to, uh, to desire to see what it is you want us to understand and know and as a result, Lord, how we are to live and how we are to be involved. And uh, Lord, so what we know not, would you teach us? What we are not, would you make us? And what we have not, Lord, would you give us? Lord, we ask these things uh, desperately, Lord, because we are a needy people. And Lord, we ask that also, that in particular, that I would simply be your messenger to faithfully proclaim your truth this morning. We ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the Lord Jesus Christ told the apostles that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and then to the end of the earth. That was the mission that he had called them to. And so far in the book of Acts, we've seen the Holy Spirit unleashed through the proclamation of the word, the gospel of Jesus Christ in great power. And we saw on the day of Pentecost that 3,000 were converted. And that's in Acts chapter 2. Then after the healing, uh, after that, the healing of the lame man allowed Peter and John to proclaim once again the gospel, but in a different setting. And as a result of that, the number of the converts came to 5,000. After the news of Ananias and Sapphira's sin, the gospel continued to be spread. Acts chapter 5 verse 14 says this, More than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And then, after the apostles are arrested and put in jail and are delivered and finally brought before the Sanhedrin, uh, this is for the second time, we're told in Acts chapter 6 verse 1 that the disciples or the converts continued to increase in number. So what we have seen is the steady growth of the church through the proclamation, the witness of the gospel. 
And so when we come to chapter 6, it marks the beginning of something. It's not the end of ministry in Jerusalem, but it's the beginning of the end in particular because it's transitioning toward a new phase in ministry that will happen in chapter 9. But until we get there, we're going to come face to face with two particular men, Stephen and Philip. And so our text has a couple of purposes. First of all, it's to introduce these two men of God. Secondly, it is to confront another potential obstacle to gospel ministry, another potential division that will happen in the church. Now, we've already seen how persecution is there to try and stop the proclamation of the gospel. That would be kind of, I would say, opposition from the outside. And we've also already seen how the, the presence of sin is an obstacle to gospel proclamation in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And so there's a sense in which Luke is showing us, you know, opposition from the outside, problems on the inside. Opposition from the outside, problems on the inside. And we come once again now in Acts chapter 6 to a particular problem that is happening within the church. Another form of stumbling, potential obstacle for gospel witness. And here's what it is in a nutshell that good things which must be dealt with can get in the way of the main thing which must continue. And usually when we come to Acts 6, 1 through 7, the main focus can be on the choosing of the seven men to assist the elders in the mercy ministry or the care of the widows. And certainly it's about that, but in the context of the book of Acts, the line that is driving through this text, that is the the movement of the whole book, the main emphasis is the apostles' need to maintain their gospel witness. And friends, we need to see that. So the proposition for this passage is this. We must not allow good things to hinder the main thing the ministry of the word. We must not allow good things to stand in the way of the main thing, the ongoing ministry of the word. Or to say it a little differently, we must not allow immediate concerns or issues to hinder the main focus of the church. That would be the ministry of the word. So it's a call for the church to be responsible to deal with the serious problems in the life of the church while at the same time maintaining the priority of apostolic witness. In short, the apostles are saying, hey guys, I know that this concern is important, but we, uh, but we, can we please get some godly men to take a look at the problem so that we can get back to what Jesus has called us to And that's being his witnesses. And so the aim of this passage is twofold. It's speaking really to, to, I would say, two groups here. First of all, elders, whose responsibility is to maintain the oversight of the church. For them, it's to make or to keep prioritizing the ministry of the word. Secondly, it's to look to raise leaders who are willing to serve. In other words, elders helping liberate ministry in the church. And then, not just for the elders, but for the body to be committed to help liberate the elders for word ministry by using their spiritual gifts, their initiative, their leadership in the service of the Lord. As a result of that, helping liberate the elders to word ministry. Now, you might be thinking, I'm here after Thanksgiving. It's been a great week. I've been with family. I mean, last week... You know, we had this opposition, people being thrown in jail, angels appeared, people were whipped, all this kind of stuff. It was exciting stuff. And today I've come to a lecture on administration in the church. You might be like, you know, just wake me up when it's done. I get it. But in the flow of what Luke is doing, he's giving us something that is essential for the church. It's, it's wonderful. It's necessary. And there's a perspective here that we all need to recognize and embrace. And so I want to begin here by talking about the problem acknowledged. Now, to think that problems or concerns or complaints 
will not be ongoing in the life of the church is simply naive. There's no such church that exists this side of heaven that is without problems or concerns or issues. They will always be present. In fact, when someone thinks or says, I'm looking for that perfect church to be sure when they arrive, it's no longer perfect, right? And we also need to remember that most problems, most concerns or complaints are not necessarily issues of sin. Many times they're linked to the logistics of what it means to be a gathered people. Let me give you some examples. There's little parking available for those who come late. A potential solution would be come early. The pews are a little uncomfortable. Then bring a cushion. Or the PowerPoint presentation is hard to read because the font is too small. It was last week, and there's a reason for it, and so my job is to make it bigger. All right? I mean, I mean these, they're problems, they're issues, and they're logistical. They're not sinful. It's just what happened, right? The noisy train always seems to come when the preaching starts. There are some things that you just can't change. But sometimes the concerns run a little deeper and have greater implications for the church. And that is what we see revealed in verse 1. Notice the immediate problem, the neglect of the Hellenist widows. Verse 1, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. It's the distribution of food that's being talked about. So this immediate problem, get this, it comes at a time in the church when things are going well. The disciples are increasing in number. We're seeing the fruit of the apostolic witness taking root and people are being converted and the church is growing. And at the end of chapter 4, if you remember in verses 32 through 34, Luke tells us that the church was united. The members were generous so that there was not a needy person among them. But as the church grows, so do the needs of the church. And it's easy under such circumstances for areas of need and care to get lost in the shuffle of church life. And what we find is that there's a complaint that arose by the Hellenists against the Hebrews because their widows were not receiving the benefit of the daily distribution of food. And for Luke, and the word he uses there, it indicates for us that this was a very serious problem. And it is, and it was. But this could be the potential for division in the church. And the apostles are not even out of Jerusalem yet. All right, you, see, you see the problem here. You see the tension that's going on here. Now, what's the complaint again? The Hellenistic widows are being neglected in the daily distribution of food. There's two groups of people, two groups of Jews. There are the Hebrews, and then there are the Hellenists. The Hebrews are the Jews who, for the most part, remained in Jerusalem and are primarily Aramaic-speaking. Then there are the Hellenists who were spread out because of the diaspora and have maybe come back during time because there was freedom now for them to travel under the Roman Empire to be able to come back and to be there in Israel, in Jerusalem. But they were primarily Greek in their speaking. And they had taken on some of the culture, the Hellenistic culture, wherever they were. And so there was somewhat of a distinction between the two groups. Even in Jerusalem, there, there, the history shows us that there were, there were Hebrew synagogues and there were Hellenistic synagogues. So there was this kind of a natural division. So there was this tension that was going on because the Hellenists, the ones that you might say were the outsiders who are returning, were not being treated in the same way as the Hebrew widows were being treated. Now, friends, we must understand that the potential division here is not one of theology. 
It's not one of ethnicity, but it is of language and culture. Now, Luke doesn't tell us why the Hellenistic widows had been neglected. He doesn't give us that information. He doesn't get into the detail of that, but he only tells us that they had been repeatedly neglected. Now, maybe it was the fact that many Hellenistic Jews desired, I want to say, as their, uh, their bucket list item to get back to Jerusalem late in life because they lived most of their life, all their life, in another place, and they would come to Jerusalem as pilgrims And sometimes they would die there. And if you have a husband who's brought his wife and he dies, she's left now in Jerusalem alone without an extended family to to take care of her. So she's desperate. She's in need. It's also possible that as these people converted to Christianity, that the synagogues that were there to help widows like this said, well, you've now abandoned the Jewish faith. You are now following this this Christianity. We're not going to help you. We don't know. We're not exactly sure. We're not told. But I want you to get the sense of the idea of where some of this stuff may come from. What the text seems to indicate is that the issue at hand here was one of administration. administration, administrative neglect and oversight due in part to the rapid growth of the church. Now, friends, I don't know if you understand this, but right now we might say, okay, we've got things together, but if God somehow increases our number over the few weeks from, you know, from 120 to about 5,000, that's going to be some rapid changes and adjustments that we're going to have to make. And we may not have the infrastructure and the organization to do that. That's a lot of pressure put on the apostles to make sure these details are taken care of. So there certainly is an administration issue here. So how do the apostles respond to this? How do they respond to this immediate crisis? Well, first of all, they don't ignore it. They don't think to themselves the problem will simply correct itself in due course or that people will just have to find a way to push through. Now, there are sometimes that problems, that's how, that's how we need to kind of uh, you know, address a problem, just assess it and say, you know what, this is okay, we'll have to push through, this will be all right. But they don't ignore it. They don't minimize it. They don't kind of just say, you know, this is kind of a small administrative issue that any kind of secretary or church administrator can take care of. Just a couple of emails over here and a few phone calls, we'll have this sorted. No, they don't minimize it like that. They do acknowledge it and they take ownership of it. And certainly the apostles think that this is a serious issue. All 12 of them gather and summon the full membership of the disciples. I just want you to get the picture here. And we're planning on having a members meeting this Saturday here. But we are not a church of between 5,000 to 10,000 people. I don't know how they did this, but it must have been quite a, a church meeting. And without Robert's rules of order, I might add. But the way the apostles handed the issue, we're told, pleased the whole gathering. So the apostles here are acknowledging it. They're taking ownership of it. They take the problem seriously. They take on the problem strategically. Now, friends, we we need to step back a little bit here and ask ourselves some questions here and just realize some things. Immediate problems come in many forms, don't they? Some are more serious than others. Some are more urgent than others. When COVID-19 hit at the beginning of 2020, we all had to think afresh about what ministry to the body of Christ would look like. I mean, churches around the country that have all these big ministries and wow and this and that going on are just like, we can't do that anymore. All we can do is live stream, someone playing a guitar, have a word of prayer, and then the pastor's going to speak. And for them, it was like, uh, we're not sure if that's really church. But what it did, I think, is it, it whittled down these churches to say, these are the essentials. This is good. But still, there was some adjustment that needed to take place. 
What were the protocols that had to be put in place in order for gatherings to take place or for people to meet? If you remember, we started to try and do these bubbles, and then people were, were, were we started to do outdoor churches, all these different things. I mean, so quickly, we, we forget all the work that took place in order to make that happen, right? Masks and social distancing and singing and the Lord's Supper and live stream and meeting outdoors and meeting indoors and vaccines and no vaccines, and we're still kind of in this thick. It takes Diligent, careful administration to see that these things are addressed and taken care of. But here are some other immediate problems a church may face. The church finds finds out that Fred Bloggs is in the hospital for emergency surgery and his family of six could really use some help with food and encouragement. By the way, there's no such person as Fred Bloggs. Just if you're wondering, I've I've not met Fred Bloggs before, right? Just want you to know, right? Sally Smith passed away, or her father passed away in Jacksonville, Florida, and she's a single mom with a number of kids, and she's kind of living hand to mouth, and how is she going to get there for the funeral, and how is she going to afford to do that, and what's going to happen with the kids? Those are immediate issues. Those are immediate problems. A visitor has called the church repeatedly to ask if he can get a ride to church because he has no transportation and has difficulty walking. How about... Uh, Young couples in the church who are struggling in their marriages and are in desperate need of encouragement and counseling. Or three of our families just got notices that they are getting evicted from their homes. Or the Sunday school rooms are dirty and need to be clean. There's no toilet in the bathrooms. There's a church activity this weekend and there's no child care provided. Some of these are urgent. Some of these are immediate. Who's going to deal with those things? All of these immediate issues, concerns, or problems are important. Some are more urgent than the others, but not all are as serious as the others. And now, although the neglect of the Hellenistic widows was a serious problem, it wasn't the essential problem. It was the immediate problem, but it is not the essential problem. Let's read on now at verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. The apostles are not so full of themselves or so disconnected to the congregation that they cannot recognize the immediate problem before them. It's a real problem. It's an important problem. It's a problem that needs to be dealt with quickly and carefully. But giving attention to this immediate problem could undermine the more essential problem. They have been commissioned by Christ to be witnesses, and giving attention to this immediate problem is going to take them away from this responsibility that Christ has given them to carry out the ministry of the word. So taking care of the Hellenistic widows is very important, but in light of Christ's mission, it is not as important as their gospel witness. And that is why they say, I mean, it's, it's pretty pointed, isn't it? It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. They're not saying that with arrogance. They're not saying, well, you know, we, we're, we're called to this task. We don't deal with you people down there. That, that's not the attitude at all. They're saying, look, we have a responsibility here And if we jump over here and deal with this important issue, it's taking us away from what God has called us to do. So they're not above the hard work of serving tables. They're not minimizing the importance of serving the tables, but they're saying if we give our attention to caring for the Hellenistic widows, it will take us away from this gospel priority. Now, friends, some churches want their pastors and elders to be managers or CEOs rather than pastor teachers. They want them to spend their time dutifully attending to administration in the church so that programs can be run, so that people can be revitalized, rather than taking time for the preparation of the preaching of the word of God. Now, friends, when that happens, the church has lost its way. It no longer prioritizes the apostolic witness and the pastor's commission to preach the word. It's also ignorant of the kind of time it takes 
to work faithfully in the text of God's word so that that pastor can prepare a healthy portion of spiritual food when it's time to preach. What this passage is screaming is that the main priority of the church is to help protect the elders so that they can be free to carry out their God-given responsibilities, in particular, the proclamation of the word of God. Now, unfortunately, in recent years, I'd say the past 30, 40 years, as the church growth movement has been emphasized, the emphasis there has been to protect, uh, sorry, has been to, to have and administer programs while at the same time keeping the pulpit rather light and short, which is the total opposite of what this passage is telling us. Some churches have even taken, taken up the idea of let's cancel church on Sunday so that we can all go out and do mercy ministry. Now, it's all very well intended. It all sounds noble. It all sounds biblical. They'll say things like this. Well, Jesus didn't spend all of his time preaching and teaching. I mean, he did feed the 5,000 and the 4,000. He healed many people and their diseases. He cast out demons. He was just as heavily involved in mercy ministry as he was in preaching and teaching ministry. But friends, here is the problem with that kind of thinking. It confuses the ministry of Jesus with pastoral ministry. Let Let me explain what I'm saying. Please hear this. Your pastor is not Jesus. Now, that might come as a shock to you, I understand. But you see, to to attribute to apostles and even elders then that we are Jesus and we have the same kind of responsibilities as Jesus is to miss the point. The mercy ministry that Jesus did was not the end in itself. Now, please hear this. It was to draw attention and authenticate the preaching and teaching of the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus was all about proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. That was what he came to do. Those who were healed and had demons cast out were not automatically converts to the gospel. So don't think when Jesus healed someone that they are saved. They're healed. He has provided for them a wonderful and an immediate earthly kindness. But it isn't necessarily an eternal grace. What they need is to hear the message of the kingdom. And so all of these healings and miracles, you might say, that Jesus did, and even what the apostles are going to do, are not the end in of themselves. They are the means to say, you need to listen to this message. Now hear this. Pastors and elders are not called to care for the needy poor in the world. Our job is not to to feed all the poor and the hungry in this neighborhood. That's not the role of the church. Mercy ministries, although fine and helpful in and of themselves, are not a replacement for gospel witness. What good does it do if we feed the poor to the neglect of telling them about Jesus? And friends, there have been good organizations that have been started that say we're going to meet the needs of the poor And we're going to tell them about Jesus, who today meet the needs of the poor and don't tell them about Jesus. It gets neglected. It gets sidelined. You can't change a neighborhood, a people group, a city simply by doing good deeds. Lasting change will only take place because of the faithful preaching and teaching of God's word in power. The problem is much of the church doesn't believe that anymore. Now, we're we're not asking society to believe that. We're not saying, oh, this is what Republicans believe, because they don't. This is not what Democrats believe. This isn't even what many in the church believe. They've lost their trust in the power and the, the, the priority of the preached word. But that is what the apostles are appealing for here. Now, I realize that to some ears, that sounds rather cold and harsh. 
I'm certainly not saying that as Christians or even as, a, as an individual pastor that we shouldn't have compassion for other people. We certainly should, and we can do good deeds toward them, but that is not the priority of our life and ministry. Hear this, Jesus didn't heal every person he met. He didn't cast out every demon from every individual he encountered. He didn't stop in Jerusalem and set up a soup kitchen because he saw so many poor people around him, and they were all over the place. No, every healing, every casting out of demon, every miraculous provision of food screamed to all who were watching and listening that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that his word should be listened to. Friends, this is so important because the church has drifted in this area. There's there's not the, the value of the faithful proclamation of the word. Now, notice here the priority of the apostolic witness. We find it in verse 4. The apostles communicate their Christ-appointed commission priority to the rest of the congregation. This is the the basis of what they're saying. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. We need your help, and, and this is why, because this is our job. And so in this one verse, we can see the priority of, of three aspects of pastoral ministry. Prayer, preparation, and preaching. Now, to many, if not most, that doesn't sound like a lot of work. Now, you guys have never said this to me, but it's like, oh, okay, Pastor, you, you might work like one hour a week or something like that, right? I mean, so you kind of read this prayer, preparation, and preaching. It's like, okay, you know, maybe 15 minutes a day of prayer, uh, maybe preparing five hours for a sermon and preaching for, for 25 minutes. Well, you know that's not true on, on my end. But, I mean, so, you know, it's like this isn't much. This isn't much work. I mean, how does that compare to some guy who's out there digging ditches or working at FedEx or someplace like that? Now, friends, let's take a moment just to think through these things. When we look at prayer, first of all, the, the word says be devoted. We are going to devote ourselves to prayer. In other words, this is a, a whole giving oneself over to something. So this isn't just about spending hours on someone's knees, but it's, it's a heart attitude of prayer in the midst of what you're doing, you're concerned for the needs of the flock, you're concerned for the struggles people are facing, and you're, you're appealing to God, you're, you're going before him formally, you're going before him casually, you're going before him as you're opening up the word of God for the means of proclamation. And to be sure, the apostles learned much from Jesus' example. We have the record of that in, in the book of Hebrews where the writer says that Jesus offered up prayer and supplications with loud cries and tears. And friends, this devotion to prayer is essential for pastoral ministry. Secondly, there is this preparation. The word ministry has as its root idea the raising of dust in a hurry, which is talking about busy, diligent Work, right? It's, it's out there. I'm raising dust. I'm, I'm raising dirt. I'm, I'm, I'm busy working. So in other words, the apostles were doing hard labor in their preparation. Now, one of the questions that I asked a few years ago when I was doing my, my dissertation, I was studying the, the topic of uh, the preaching the philosophy and practices of lead pastors in the Bay Area. I surveyed 30 pastors, and one of the questions was this. How long do you spend in sermon preparation? The surprising answer to me was that over half of them spent less than 13 hours. Now, to you, you might say, well, 13 hours is a long time. Friends, I would be terrified to come before you if I only spent 13 hours in sermon preparation. I would feel like uh, I don't think I have any of this thought through very well or put together in such a way that would have, a, have any impression on you. I'm certainly not saying that I have a halo over my head as a pastor, but 13 hours, in my mind, is insufficient. And some of that might be as a result of the pressure put on them by churches that are saying, we expect you to do all these different things. So they only have this small amount of time. Now, friends, I'm compelled to labor hard and study so that I can stand before this congregation and know that my sermon accurately reflects the heart of the text and that God has been diligently represented. 
Any pastor or elder who ministers the word has a difficult task. It's a twofold task. Number one, of getting the text right. Faithfulness to the text. Secondly, getting the text across. In other words, communicating it effectively to the listener. And so it's not just about, about you know, having your interpretation right. It's now, how do I explain this to someone who maybe doesn't have much of a grasp of the Bible at all? It's work, friends. It's hard work. And this is what they're saying. You want us now to take care of widows, which is an important task. But guys, we have a responsibility of being ministers of the word. And to do that would take us away from that responsibility. Then we have this, number three, preaching. Of course, all the prayer and the preparation has as its goal the faithful witness to the word, uh, to the world and to the church. That Christ is Lord and that there is no other. And friends, studies have shown that the preaching of a sermon takes as much energy as an eight-hour workday. Now, that was a sermon of 30 minutes. So for me, that would be, I'm joking, right? But it's, it, it's no surprise that when I go home on a Sunday afternoon that I'm just like, Ugh, I'm just drained. Or if I'm meeting with you for a Sunday afternoon meal that my eyes are fluttering, you know, it's not because I don't want to be with you. It's just that I've, I put in a hard day's work. It's just the reality of what it is. Now, I'm not sharing all this to say, woe is me, or look at how great I am, because that's, that's not the point. I am not those things. In fact, I want to say that my experience at Gateway has been one of great joy, because those who joined together to ask me to be a part of starting Gateway were very specific to say to me, Rod, we recognize your responsibility before God and to this church. It's the ministry of the word, week in and week out. So you lead us, you shepherd us, you counsel us, and you preach the word, and we will take care of everything else. The logistics of the facilities, the organization of children's ministry, the building of a worship team, and on and on and on. Friends, that is music to a pastor's ear. Now, unlike so many pastors who don't have congregations who understand the principle being presented in this text, I do. And I'm thankful for that. And I'm thoroughly blessed because it has liberated me to do what I am wired to do. It's liberated me to do what I love to do. And friends, when it comes to the apostles and elders and pastor, uh, pastors who are the, the, the main preachers in the church in particular, all other ministries are important, but they are not the priority. If the pulpit is light, the congregation will be lightweight. If the pulpit is driven by the text, in other words, by the spirit through the word, then the congregation will be growing deep roots that are anchored in Christ. That's the desire. That's the passion. That's what we want to see, no matter who is standing up before you. And let's just say that, that Rod is taken out of the way in some way, shape, or form, and you have someone else who's standing before you as your pastor. This is what you want for him. You as a church want to liberate him and the rest of the elders to be faithful to word ministry. It is for your benefit and your children's benefit and for the benefit of all who come to this congregation. My friends, I say all of this to drive home the tension that we may not have been aware of that's in this text until we've actually come to this text and we've kind of sorted it all out. It is not right, they say, that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. They're not above serving tables, but they have a higher priority. So we see there that the problem is acknowledged by the, the apostles. Now we want to see the solution that is realized. And we find this in verses 3 through 6. So the apostles, having summoned the congregation of believers, don't offer a solution. It's interesting. They don't offer a solution, but they put forward a proposal to the problem. And they invite the congregation to be a part of the solution by selecting capable candidates who will be responsible for the food distribution. And so we find in verse 3, first of all, the need for godly men or godly assistants, if you want to say it that way. 
Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. There's a need for godly assistance. And we notice here three, you might want to say, um, three aspects of their, of their character. First of all, they have to have a good reputation. This is speaking to their character. They have proven themselves among the body to be, uh, to be faithful, to be trustworthy, to be men of integrity. Their lives have been on display for all to see. And they can say, the body can say, these men are trustworthy. They have character. They have a good reputation. Secondly, they're full of the Holy Spirit. And saying here, in other words, they're true believers who now have, there's evidence that they have been affected by the Holy Spirit. Again, it has been observed. It has been seen. And this will then drive their motivation. They're not doing this for selfish gain. They're doing this by means of the Holy Spirit at work in them. And then third, they're full of wisdom. The idea of wisdom is skill. It's the the capability to do something. So these must be capable men. They've shown evidence of skill to to make good judgments, uh, ultimately, in order to revitalize the daily distribution of the food to the Hellenistic widows. So character, motivation, and skill all mark here uh, what is needed for these godly men. Secondly, notice the selection. The selection here of godly assistance. We're told that the the assembly was pleased with what the apostles were presenting, and now they choose seven men. And we're not told how the congregation chose these seven men. Did they do it by lot? Did they break up into groups or regions? We're not exactly sure. The point is that they were chosen to do the ministry of waiting on tables, of distributing the food to the widows, which was going to be a labor, which was going to be a duty. This wasn't the gathering of a good old boys club. This is a group of men who knew that if they were chosen, there was hard work ahead. There was organization that needed to be done. There was going to be administration that needed to be carried out. And and they would actually have to be sweating with labor to, to make sure this need was taken care of. Now, who are the men that are chosen? Well, there's two that stand out, right? Stephen, and we'll find him next after this text, all the way into chapter 8. It's a long, beautiful, wonderful section of Scripture. The longest sermon preached is Stephen. But ultimately, he will be stoned to death. He'll be the first Christian martyr to the church. And there's Philip, as we'll know at the end of chapter 8, will have this encounter with an Ethiopian eunuch. A Holy Spirit-driven encounter where he will testify to Christ and this Ethiopian will be gloriously saved and then baptized, right? And then there are these others, Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, uh, Permanus, uh, and Nicolas, a proselyte of the church. Now, the first thing I want you to notice here is that these are not lightweight men. In other words, if Stephen and Philip can handle the word of God and can preach the word of God, although not apostles. These were men of substance. They weren't just men of physical acumen. They were men who were rounded and spiritual and gifted in many ways. Secondly, and what's significant but often overlooked, is that all of these men who are chosen have Greek names. I just want you to think about that. The problem that has been discovered and presented to the apostles is the neglect of the Greek widows. And there is certainly wisdom now in raising up seven men who speak Greek, who may themselves actually be Hellenistic Jews. And we'll see at the end of the story here that everyone's happy with this even the Hebrews, that these seven Greek-speaking Jews are going to care for their widows. This is the unity that happens. But the, the wisdom here is that these are men who speak Greek. Now, it's interesting here. We have Stephen, who is going to preach. And if he's in, in Jerusalem, he's preaching in Aramaic. Philip is also going to be interacting with someone in Aramaic. 
And what we find here is that these, these men are probably bilingual to make sure that they can meet the needs and they can understand and they can hear and really affect what's going on in both camps, the Hebrews and the Hellenists. And you see the wisdom going on there? It's a wonderful picture, isn't it? So the, so the issue here was not ethnicity, but it was of speech. It was of culture. And so the wisdom is to bring these people who, who, who probably spoke both languages to meet this particular need. And then we have the commissioning of the godly assistants or the godly men. These they sat before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So we see three activities taking place here. These chosen men, first of all, are affirmed by the apostles. Now, it's a reminder, friends, here, and just in the, the order and structure of things, that the apostles had authority over this group of men and over the congregation. And that the whole gathering or congregation recognized and submitted to the apostles' authority in this matter. So they're affirmed by the apostles. Secondly, they're prayed for by the apostles. And I'm sure they prayed for wisdom, for skillful administration, for for gentle and loving oversight, for healing and thankfulness to be present among the widows, as well as the people in general. Then they were commissioned by the apostles. These seven men, the seven, are being appointed to this duty. This is official church business. Here we have a widow problem. You seven men are now responsible to assess the situation and to determine what needs to be done in this situation. We trust your judgment. That's why you have been chosen. And in doing that, you release us to get back to what God has called us to do, and that is the ministry of the word. What we have here are the seeds of what the apostles would later identify as the office of deacon. And as the apostles died out and elders, plural, are raised up or established as leaders in the churches, the office of deacon would come in and continue to be needed. And based on this passage, we can see that their duty encompassed three responsibilities in the life of the church. Let me just mention them for you. What were the deacons to do? First of all, they look out for and meet tangible needs. This is what a deacon does. In this context, the Hellenist widows are being neglected, so how? Uh, so it's now their responsibility to assess the situation and determine what needs to be done, and then to do it. That's what deacons do. They look out for needs, and they seek for ways to meet the needs or to solve the problems that they see. It's a very needed role in the church. Secondly, they protect and promote the unity of the church. In taking this responsibility on to care for the Hellenistic widows as their own, they stop the potential division from growing worse and instead allow the body to continue to grow in unity. See, They were, they were in a sense, buffers to stop disunity. They saw a potential problem and they solved it, and it maintained the unity of the church. Third, they serve and support the ministry of the elders, and so they're recognizing their need to act and to observe and to do so as to liberate the elders to carry out the ministry of the word, and then secondly, so that they can facilitate the body of Christ to use their gifts for ministry in the church. Friends, it's a wonderful Responsibility. Now, I appreciate the wisdom and observation of Thibidi Anyabwile. It's hard to pronounce, but Thibidi Anyabwile, written some great stuff. Here's what he says on this particular topic. It's up there on the screen. To modern sensibilities, serving tables sometimes connotes a low-level, demeaning position. A person waits tables when he or she is working through college or passing time until the career takes off. People regard it as a necessary sacrifice to make ends meet. But how different it is in the Lord's church. The apostles, under the inspiration of God's Spirit, appear to have created an entirely new office in the church for the specific purpose of serving tables. And the loftiness of this office office is seen in the character of the individuals required to fill it, the fact that this facilitates the ministry of the word and prayer, 
and the unifying and strengthening effect it has on the whole church. The deaconate is important. Friends, it is. It's very important. And it's important to the church as a whole, and it's important for the elders as leaders. Which then, we move then from the problem acknowledged to the solution realized now to this last part, verse 7, the priority maintained. Now Luke wants us to see what happens when those who are called to word ministry are both protected and liberated to fulfill their calling. And the word of God continued to increase, we're told, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So, because the apostles were liberated to do, to, to do word ministry, the word literally continued to spread. There was an increase in proclamation. It was, it was going further now. It wasn't kind of you know, re- restricted. It was liberated. There was a growing conversion that took place. As the word spread, people heard the gospel preached and taught from the, the Old Testament scriptures and they were converted. And there's a surprising penetration here, isn't there? I mean, it kind of comes out of nowhere here. And we're told, <laughs> and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That's just reminding us that this, this religious establishment, these people that, that were representing, I'm going to say Judaism and, and the temple with the high priest and all the conflict that we saw before this that was against these apostles and this, this Christian movement now is being penetrated by the faithful proclamation of the word. Even the priests were coming to faith in Christ. It's powerful, friends. And this happens because a problem was recognized. The church listened to the problem with the leadership of the apostles and came up with a solution, raising up seven men who would deal with this issue so that the elders could, or the apostles in this case, could, could get back to what they were called to do, the proclamation of the word. Now, as we bring things to a close, I want to just say three things that really come out of this text. First of all, that the seeds of church governance are found in this text. Here we have in Acts 6, 1-7, through the seeds of church governance. The apostles are precursors for the elders. The seven men are precursors for deacons. The whole gathering is a precursor for the local church. So just understand there's the seeds that are laid out here for, I want to say, order and structure and interaction within the body of Christ, right? Secondly, I want you to just to think about the nature of Christian discipleship. What I want to draw your attention to is that word that's repeated three times in this passage, in verse 1, in verse 2, and in verse 7, And it's used for the first time by Luke. So three times it's hammered here for us. And it's that word referring to believers as disciples. Did you catch that? Now, a disciple is a learner or a student. And a Christian disciple is a learner and a student in the school of Jesus Christ. He or she is one who is a student who is learning how to follow Jesus as their Lord and Master. And a Christian disciple is also a minister. He or she serves or deacons for the benefit of the rest of the body. These are all, I would say, generic terms to describe everyone that's part of the gathering of the body of Christ. So elders are disciples and ministers. Deacons are disciples and ministers. The body are disciples and ministers. So we're all disciples, and we're all to be serving. John Stott, a pastor who's now with the Lord from England, he says this, a vital principle is illustrated in this incident, which is of urgent importance to the church today. It is not that God calls all his people to ministry. So it is that God calls all his people to ministry, that he calls different people to different ministries, and that those called to prayer and the ministry of the word must on no account allow themselves to be distracted from their priorities. Which then leads us to this third point, and that is the role of church ministry. 
And we can say that the seeds in this passage help us understand that elders lead ministry, deacons facilitate ministry, and the congregation does ministry. Now, I mean, I know you guys are just empowered to go out and live for the Lord as a result of the clarity that's happening here from this passage. But understand, friends, this is, this is important for us. We need to understand how, I would say, the trellis of the church works so that the vine of gospel ministry can continue to grow in the context of the local church. So here's my few questions to you. What is your role at Gateway Bible Church? What are you doing to liberate the elders to diligent word ministry? What are you doing to help facilitate ongoing new ministry? I mean, as a pastor, it's not unusual for someone to say, hey, hey, have you thought that we could do this ministry? Have you thought about we could do this ministry? Hey, pastor, we need this ministry. It's like, look, we can't compete with large church down the street. God has not called us to do that. And quite frankly, that ministry is not the responsibility of the elders to do. We have to assess as to whether there is actual need in our church, and then we're going to come to you and say, look, we need your help. It's right to bring the concern to the elders, but that doesn't mean that the elders are going to turn around and and somehow now they are going to be doing it. They need the body of Christ to step up and take on responsibility so those needs can be met. Are you involved in doing ministry with your brothers and sisters? Are you one to complain, or are you willing to jump in to help solve a problem, serve your church family, and meet a need? Now, I want you to know that when the elders and I were on retreat this past month, that one of the main topics of discussion was the need for the office of deacon to be formalized here at Gateway. Right now, we don't have any formal deacons. We have people who are, I would say, fulfilling those tasks. But part of our goal over the next few months is to make sure that you understand what a deacon is and that we can begin the process of formalizing that. And quite frankly, as elders and as a teaching pastor, I'm looking forward to that because we need deacons to help us make sure that needs are being met and that we can turn to them and say, look, this needs to be dealt with. Uh, we're giving it to you. Now, you can come and talk to us, but we can, we can do that. Now, we got, we got a little bit of a sense of that at the 10-year anniversary, because I was told, in fact, the elders were kind of told, look, you let us run with this. Uh, if we have questions, we'll come and talk to you. We don't want you to be bothered by it. And quite frankly, things went exceptionally well, and we had people in the church that just stood, you know, kept, stepped up to the plate, worked hard, And it was a wonderful time of celebration for us. And we're thankful for that. So it's not that we necessarily have problems in our church, but we want to be more conformed to what Scripture says should be true in a gospel-centered church. And so we want to move toward that end. All right? Let's stand together and we'll pray. Lord, help us today. We have labored in this text, Lord, and we find ourselves in a number of different places as elders We see our responsibility to lead, and in particular to lead by making sure that word ministry is the priority and that we are helping raise up and train deacons to carry out, uh, I would say, um, other kinds of ministry in the church that's important, to help facilitate that. There are some in this church, Lord, who are actively part of that facilitation kind of ministry. They're, They're doing it. We have a sync team. Lord, you know that, and we've been working hard to make sure that things are done well. But we're also all attenders or members of this church. We all have a role to play. We all have a place to serve. And Lord, I ask that as a result of our time in the text this morning, that we would step back and we would evaluate, Lord, what that role is. Give us wisdom. Give us insight. Lord, give us a heart to be able to say that we don't want to be a part of the, I want to say, the the complaining crowd that's expecting other people to do stuff. But we want to be a part of the solution crowd that's saying, what's the problem? Uh, We want to be a part of the solution. We want to help make sure things get done. We want to make sure that that the, the, the pastors are liberated to focus on word ministry, whether that be from the pulpit 
whether that be in, in home group or Bible study or even in counseling one-on-one. And uh, Lord, I just ask that as a church, we would be revitalized in this passion to see that, yes, there are lots of things that we can be doing, but the primary, the primary thing that you've called the church to do is to proclaim faithfully the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word of God, so that it, it builds up and equips the saints, but Lord, also so that it testifies to those who are not, uh, not believers, that they would be believers, they would see Christ as their only answer and their only hope. Help us, Lord, as we think through these things together in your precious holy name. Amen.